right, today on Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, we've got Molly Curran. And I, I was like, I would wave, but I'm just going to sit here and accept that. That's all right. it's, all, it'll be, it's on YouTube too, so it's yeah. everywhere. Okay. Um, Molly, you've got a pretty, pretty amazing background besides the fact that you're a poker shark, as evidenced <laughs> three weeks ago at my place. You've also got a doctor of uh, pharmacy, I think from UT, correct? Yes, from UT back in 2014. Tell us a little about a little bit about yourself. So I actually started in economics and international relations as a consultant in business, and then I moved to Austin because that's what you do when you're like 22 years old and you quit your nice consulting gig and move to a city where you don't know anyone. And then uh, got here and started looking for other things to do. I think I figured out in college, like right at the end of college, I liked science because I uh, basically waited to take the required classes for graduation until the easy ones opened up the last year of undergrad. And then was like, oh, I like this. Why didn't I do this sooner? Um, but it was not the time to ask your parents to pay for another four years of undergrad again. Fair. So went back out into the world and tried to figure out where I kind of fit in in the science world and looked at a lot of different medical uh, degree fields and found pharmacy. Um, my dad had had a lot of health issues when I was in high school. And it's kind of one of those things where a pharmacist actually caught what was going on with him, which was that he uh, was experiencing super low blood pressure from one of the medications he was religiously taking because he's a really good patient and takes his meds like he's supposed to. <laughs> Not many people do that. <laughs> and so he ended up having to be rehospitalized while they retitrated all of that because a few people were like, is he having another heart attack? Is this going on? And he had gone into the pharmacy and described some stuff. They're like, you do need to go to the hospital. You do need to get checked out. This is all symptoms of like, the blood pressure medicine doing what it's supposed to do, but they started like four new medicines for you and your body just needs to be re like recalibrated, right. fixed up. So it always kind of stuck in the back of my head. And then in going to UT, I got a job at a pharmacy here in town and started night school, taking just general science classes, trying to figure it out and really loved biochemistry and chemistry. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, applied to pharmacy school, and here I am today, a wonderful doctor of pharmacy sitting in front of you, um, having done some residency after pharmacy school, and now work in healthcare at the acute care level. Wow. So um, that's just a little, little, little pearls. That's great. I So, so that was, the, your, your dad's Health condition seems like it was it was a potential catalyst for for going into pharmacy. I think it was a catalyst for like health fields in general because I had two family members go through pretty major health complications at the same time, and so it was always something that I got exposed to at a young age. And I actually speak about this with. Students when I had have students come rotate through the hospital with me because there's a lot of things you see at the hospital that you don't see in everyday life. Um, and I think that came up recently with the Buffalo Bills player and they saw 
CPR, like a lot of people, that's the first time they've seen CPR actually being performed in a non-Hollywood way. And like people who are at the field close enough to see it were, some of them were like, I was pretty traumatized by seeing all of that. Um, And so one of the things I always remember is being like 15, 16, going to see a family member and they were, had a feeding tube in and the feeding tube fell out of their um, nose while I was there. And they were like, we're gonna have to reinsert that. And to watch a tube that's like three feet long come out of your loved one's nose (laughs) and then have to think like, they're gonna have to stick that back up there. Like at 16, I was just like, ooh. And then (laughs) I'm gonna go walk out, I'm gonna take a walk. Like my dad's like, it's probably time for us to take a walk so they can go ahead and do that. So it's like, you see these things and then like later in life learning about science and then learning about um, various parts. Like I took anatomy and physiology and biology and biochemistry. I was like, I definitely wanna do something healthcare related. And then I thought about my dad and that. Um, story of the medicines. And so I was kind of drawn to pharmacy. I think a lot of times they actually asked family members to leave the room oftentimes when either a feeding or breathing tube comes out. And they're like, you you don't yeah. want to be in here for this. No, no one wants to see this. It's, it's a tough thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yikes. It's <laughs> like a lot to digest there. So just on an absolute fundamental level. Mm-hmm. Most of us think about the person in the white coat at your local pharmacy who for some reason stands slightly above us. I think Seinfeld has a joke I'm, about this. I was like, um, and I'm super tall too. So correct. Then I'm extra above. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of us think of that, but that's that's not really what it is you're doing. And then on top of that, I'm not sure that a lot of people really understand sort of the the fundamentals of like – what the drug discovery, delivery, and you know the the entire process, and a lot of that is is in the pharmacy. It's not just some random chemist, you know, at, at wherever discovering a new molecule and saying what can we do with this, right? There's yeah. there's a tremendous amount that goes into this. Can we talk about sort of the basics there, just so we yeah. can all get up to speed? By the way, including myself. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So I think. Um, it is really interesting to think about how this whole process works because there's a diff- few different drug targets you see. And I think we learned a lot more about it during COVID because um, of all of the vaccine discussions. Uh, but it's like pharmacology as a whole is the study of drugs. And then we break it down into there's these pharmacodynamic properties that we have to understand. So that's what's the drug doing to the body. Um, And I always think of it as like, okay, so I have this molecule that does this thing. What do I want it to do? So like you have high blood pressure. I want to lower your blood pressure. So I want to find a drug that does that. But it's not as easy as just saying like, hey, this drug, as like I saw in my dad's case, like, hey, this drug lowers your blood pressure. We're just going to start you on this and you'll be good to go. Fixed, done, you know. And if it was that easy, I mean... Make probably make a lot of money. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, Seems like they already kind of do make a lot of money, but that 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 is true. <laughs> <laughs> I won't argue that point. I'd like to see some of that. Uh, but so you kind of have to end up thinking about things like how is that drug that you take in your mouth actually getting to where it's going to work? 
So I have to think about the kinet like the kinetics. So what is my body going to do to that drug after I ingest it or inject it? And that's the kinetics part. So like kinesiology, kind of the body and what it's doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's four parts to that that you think about. So the first thing is how is my body going to absorb that drug? So you get like an Advil over the counter and it has that nice sugary coating on it. Love that. Love that. Love <laughs> I mean, the it makes taking like, that's my only way I want to take ibuprofen. I'm like, I don't want any of this generic ibuprofen. I want the kind that has the sugar coating. <laughs> Tastes so much better. Way better. Um, but it also is going to protect that from getting like from your stomach acid, from chewing up that drug before it can get to the part of the intestine where your body can actually absorb it from. So the, the sugar coating has a purpose. I didn't know that. I literally thought it was just to taste better. <laughs> I mean, I think the generic brands don't have the sugar part of it, but they still have a coating on it to okay. to protect it. So I'm like, you'll hear it called enteric coated, but that's mm-hmm. what they're trying to do. Because um, your, your stomach's so acidic that there's a lot of things. There's other things we want to get into your stomach, like... If you're having indigestion and you need uh, Tums, sure. <laughs> totally unrealistic mm-hmm. situation, right? Uh, but that's something that actually we want to break down in your stomach and coat that sure. stomach. But we're, so. So, so we've got the kinetics, right? That's that's sort of the first piece of, of breaking down like how this new molecule interacts with the body. Right. What's next? Well, so... The, fir- the first part of the kinetics is the absorption. The second part is the distribution. So once it gets into my bloodstream, where is it going to go to? How is it going to get to where it's going to work? Mm-hmm. Um, does it rely on it, like binding to something else that's in my blood to carry it there? Will it just become like a solute in the blood to get it there? There are certain drugs that we take that you can only give IV because there's no way for me to take it orally, it get absorbed by my intestines and actually make it to my bloodstream because of all of the areas it needs to go through there before then. And then we think about metabolism. So certain drugs, too, that come through, um, I'm trying to think of like common ones that people know of, but... uh, there's like Plavix or Clopidogrel. It's something people take after a heart attack okay. to break down your platelets, and that requires an enzyme to make it active. So even though it's gone through all the steps, it got through your stomach, got through the intestines, in your bloodstream, now it requires another um, mo- uh, like a metabolic molecule to break it down mm. and make it into that active form to do what we want it to do to the body. Um, And then the other thing we think about is how do these drugs get out of the body? Because, great, they're doing what we want them to do, but we don't want to just take one every day and just continue to accumulate because too much. You can have too much of a good thing. (laughs) That's for sure. Uh, So um, we look mainly the two organs that do that are going to be your liver and your kidney. Um, And that's why their function is so important. And then in my setting where I am, uh, the liver and the kidney are like what we look at a lot in terms of how well are they working, what's going on with them. Like when you come in acutely sick, your kidney might not be working like it normally works because it's trying to filter out a lot of other 
toxins or it might be trying to filter out a lot of like breakdown or there's other inflammatory responses going on in the mm -hmm. body. And so because it's not working as well, then I have to think about the other drugs I'm giving you and dose them in a way that they don't accumulate too much, but you have still have enough of them to get the effects we want to see. So that's like the kinetics piece in a nutshell. Okay. So when a doctor prescribes something, let's just say what, whatever this may be, is it up to you to, to determine the dose or is it they, they determine the dose or is it sort of like a, a consultation or how does that look? So it depends on the setting that you're in. Um, a lot of the references that our physicians and prescribers use mm -hmm. will look at those things for dosing. But in my setting in the hospital, we have a lot of protocols in place for pharmacists to be able to automatically adjust drugs. So we're not doing the diagnosing. We're not necessarily picking out the agent. We might have a conversation like, hey, I saw you ordered this um, drug, but there's a slightly better, there might be an option that has some slightly better evidence out there mm -hmm. or a new drug that we really, you know, would be a better choice for this patient given other factors. Right. Um, but then once they've ordered it, we'll help. We'll just like automatically adjust it. And every day that the patient's there, we're looking at their renal function for changes and then making adjustments accordingly. So we make sure that those uh, bad accumulations don't happen. Cause Sounds good. It is good. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> I like to think it's very important, <laughs> um, but like not in a, I think it's like a environment where every team member really has a strong role. And I think oftentimes people don't realize the value that a pharmacist can have in those settings until they're actually in them and, and work alongside them. And that's something that I don't think pharmacists as a whole do exceptionally well mm -hmm. is like get out there and be a good face for the department. Like I think mm -hmm. that perception of somebody standing on the high, <laughs> the high tower or in the retail pharmacy, or in our case, the pharmacy is always in a basement because it's like a central location in the hospital, right. but it's usually next to like the cafeteria, the um, environmental services department. Well, you gotta take and the, then you got to take your food with drugs, right? Or something like that. So <laughs> That's true. I guess it makes sense. Very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> they can pick up the drugs and then they can pick up their meal and then it's all, it all works out well. Um, but people will think we're like the people in the basement who are just making like meaningless phone calls about things or calling to bother. But it's usually like for a good reason. And I think the more people get out of the basement and interact with the team. They're like, oh, whoa, like, you know, all of this stuff. I was like, yeah, I do. And it's like, <laughs> not all the time. I sometimes have to have my cell phone and look it up. I can't know every drug sure. in the world, but. <laughs> One can hope. But yeah, that's probably a, probably a good thing. I, 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 I would imagine. Actually, I won't imagine. Let's just, let's find out. Have pharmacists sort of adapted their methods with technology a bit faster than than sort of the, the the I guess other parts of the medical industry. It seems like, at least from my again anecdotal experience, it seems like that's probably the case. I think from 
there's a lot of like automated electronical things that we've used and incorporated earlier. Mm -hmm. So in the hospital, we have automated drug dispensing cabinets. We're really removing ourselves from that, like um, the people who are literally counting Counting the pills and and giving them to people. Because there's a lot more efficient ways to do that than pay somebody tons of money to like be counting by fives. I mean, we're still doing it in certain settings, but still. And then as far as like drug information indexes go, like there's a lot more of those available online and they have really great features. Um, I think that it's interesting because our whole hospital has access to a couple really, really well referenced and like um, very, they're kept very up to date. There is something called up to date. it's not what we're using at our hospital. Yeah. Um, but that have really good evidence and they cite literature for why they're making these recommendations. And pharmacy is probably the only department that uses that reference. So uh, a lot of times you come come and you get like this order and you're like, where did this dose come from? What, what What's going on here? And then I'll go find the doc and they're like, oh, this is what like my Medscape article said to do. And I was like, okay, so that dosing is for, it's not usually like totally wrong dosing. That would be very scary. <laughs> Our doctors are like totally off base. Um, but sometimes it's like, oh, but that's just for like a procedure that you're doing versus this is something you want to continue on for a couple of days. Like we got to decrease because we loaded you up with whatever was, you know, if it takes five cookies to get to a nice sugary state. And then it's like, but now I don't need to eat five cookies every minute. I can go down to like one every couple hours and probably still stay at that same kind of area. So Weird analogy with cookies, but it kind of helps. I dig it. I dig it. <laughs> um, recently, obviously, I mean, I, I don't want to harp on this subject because I think everybody wants to leave it in the past. But uh, can, what happened with COVID-19 in pharmacies? It seems like there were some pretty radical changes sort of in place. And a lot of, I mean, I mean, talk about front lines. I mean, people were literally coming in there and being like, you, you don't know if they have, you don't know what they have. Yeah. And they're in pretty pretty darn close contact, mask or not, right? And you're you're giving them a, a shot. Not you, but like yeah. retail pharmacies were giving them shots, et cetera. But even still, I imagine in the hospital setting, it's, there, there's a lot of stuff. And and on top of that, it seems like there would be a uh, a pretty pretty large impact in the in the uh, pharmacy and pharmacological world. What did that look like? It was nuts, like completely nuts. Um, for my friends who worked in like at Walgreens, CVS, I was. Like, I don't know how you guys are doing this right now because you are inundated with folks coming in who are sick, asking questions. You're expected to keep up with everybody's. I mean, that was another scary thing was, you know, you weren't able to go see your regular doctor and people were getting behind on their regular medications. So they're trying to keep up with that and call doctor's offices and everybody's working remotely. So there was lots of phone calls. So it's like phone calls, people. And then when the vaccines came out, it was like, now I got to vaccinate you. And I'm expected to do all of this in like an eight hour shift. You're going to cut my help. So I was just like, That is a nightmare. (laughs) And when I had physicians, so I worked in the emergency department for most of um, the pandemic as a pharmacist, uh, which was a very, very 
eye-opening experience. But whenever the physicians there were trying to call a pharmacy to like see if they had Paxlovid or one of the COVID drugs, it was like they'd be on hold forever and getting super frustrated. I was like, well, they're probably trying to like vaccinate like 10 people. There's probably like three other doctors on holds, like just have a little patience or tell me which pharmacy you're trying to reach and I'll see if I know someone who's there and I'll just text them and ask them the question. Did you, did you ever have patients being like, I want I want the ivermectin or the hydroxychloroquine, oh. like the other stuff? We had patients who'd be in the ICU and their family members were insistent that this is what was going to cure them. We actually, it was interesting when um, they were talking about hydroxychloroquine before all the evidence came out that pretty much debunked its use. We were at the hospital, were supplied with like government stores of this. So we had like thousands upon thousands of hydroxychloroquine um, tablets sitting in a room. We had a COVID room of meds like those. We had a whole bunch of inhalers. We had like, um, we didn't ever stockpile ivermectin because that data was like the amount of ivermectin you had to take to inhibit the viral um, load was pretty much toxic. And I, so, I, okay. so when, when you actually like dig into the literature behind it. And so people thought maybe you can get a small dose, but it's like you're never going to get to the to the amount of drug to that virus that would actually um, inhibit the... So it may have had an effect, but it was irrelevant because you would, you'd have to load yourself up to a, an almost ridiculous level. Okay. Right. Okay. right. Um, and then there was... There's a bunch of other drugs that have come out. It was really unique because like as drug drug experts. <laughs> well, we're the people who like spent all this time studying drugs and here you go in like six months we're going to introduce like six new drugs with all these new mechanisms of action that like had never really existed before or had like the mRNA technology had been something that had been talked about for a while but the idea of and the practicality of it which is something I always talk to friends about during um with like vaccine hesitancy with mRNA was like this technology isn't like brand brand new like there's no way the speed at which this was developed nobody had the idea of it but that cold storage portion like how are they ever going to mass like produce a vaccine that had to be stored in like these crazy negative temperature like we had to buy a spe special freezer at the hospital too and then we became the depot for the vaccine um, and then you had to figure out how to pull out vials and then. And apparently the way it was shipped, like when you broke the seal on one, it was ba ba breaking the seal on five. I think something like that. At least that's what that's what the uh, guy at CVS told me. <laughs> <laughs> well, once you break the seal on the vial, yes, you have to use all the doses that are in that vial. OK. Um, and so that became a thing. So when we got our first doses of that, we were having like vaccination because they mandated everyone who worked at the hospital sure. had to get vaccinated. I think that was most healthcare workers. Yeah, um, most systems. And there were very, I don't, very few exceptions at that time. And so we were holding these mass clinics and then you had like extra doses and then it was like, well, we can't get rid of these. Like 
at that time of when it really wasn't readily available, I think that December. So then people are like calling random people and be like, do you want a, a dose of vaccine? Because we don't want to be that healthcare system that wasted doses of this. Of course. Um, and what actually ended up happening, and it was kind of interesting, was that um, Austin EMS and some of our emergency medical services actually weren't in the first groups who, when they were distributing vaccine... The ambulance drivers. Okay. And so we would call them in, and we would have them come through, and we ended up vaccinating. So I was part of the... Yeah, paramedics. Yeah. I mean, I would probably do paramedics, cops, fire, firefighters, et cetera. Well, I don't know. Good thing I'm not in charge of this, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> it's like, it's good for all of us at the hospital to have this, because we're coming in contact, but they seem like they really need to. And when we found that out... Um, and it was a very, I think it was within a week, they were all had it available Good. to them as well. So, but it was that panicked period where you don't know. I mean, nobody, I felt like knew, is it going to be a week? Is it going to be two weeks? Is it going to be, how long is it going to be before we get the next batch of these in? Um, and in working in the emergency department and seeing what those paramedics were seeing daily, it was like, how can they not be There's in this small metal <laughs> van with somebody breathing COVID on them like and they yes they have all the equipment but and then it always felt like you're in an episode some kind of sci-fi thing because everybody has respirators on and they're trying to ask you for things and you're like I don't know what you're saying (laughs) and so then I'd bring like six different items because I was like it was one of these six things I'm pretty sure you said um and then they'd be like no it's none of these (laughs) they were in full like I don't know what it's called, hazmat gear, whatever, whatever you would call it for di- like you know. I, I think of that movie Outbreak, where in the where they're in those plastic suits, like the, in the level. It was, f- it was almost like that, where they had um, and I can't believe now that I'm even blanking on what it was called, but it was like this plastic helmet thing that had oxygen going into the back of it, and they would like bring these down. That, I and think then, that was just like Outbreak. Yeah. <laughs> And then they were wearing like a whole white gear jacket. And so I don't know. And I'd be like, oh, I have my reusable N95 mask that I just had to keep in a paper bag because <laughs> it got assigned. Uh, seems like you were fine. <laughs> yes. I actually have not ever had COVID as of yet. Wow. So I might be one of those people with an immune system that just doesn't let you get it. I don't know. But or I might get it tomorrow because I just said this. You never know these days. Um, are there differences? I don't. Maybe this is a silly question because I'm not sure if, if everybody has access to these. But I know there are differences between sort of the Pfizer versus Moderna. Are there differences between the other ones that were developed? I think there was a, a, a Chinese one, Sinovax, and something else somewhere else. So an AstraZeneca had one as AZ. well. And I think Johnson um, & Johnson at one point had one. They did. But they may have pulled it. <laughs> they did. It was always made fun of because of the thrombal. I mean, not made fun of, but it was the one shot, which was really nice. And the, But then there was a risk of thromboembolism, and we were seeing higher rates of, like, heart attack post-administration or developments of um, blood clots after it was given, especially Sounds in like younger people. Sounds like heart attack people. or stroke. Yeah. Not good. Not good. <laughs> so... Um, 
And all of these all got just emergency use authorization, which goes back to the whole trials, although they were tested on lots and lots of people before mm. they were. Um, obviously, at this point, we kind of know more about that process. But I think it'll be interesting to see like, if there are any sort of lasting issues or whatever going going 10 years from now. It's just, just going to be honestly interesting to see. Yeah. Um, okay. Potency and efficacy. So. What? <laughs> I guess that's just the question. What? Like you it. hear these sort of you you hear these terms thrown around when it comes to when it comes to drugs, potency and e efficacy. I have no idea what either one of those two mean. Okay. Help help, help so, a brother out here. <laughs> so, uh let's go to a class of drugs to kind of give a good example of it. So, uh we're going to go to the opioid field. Um not that I'm taking them a lot, but I use I use them a lot at work in terms of giving them to other patients. I think you mean you Not, distribute them. Yeah, okay. yeah. I distribute <laughs> to other people to administer to patients Excellent. for their use. Um, and so you have like morphine, which older painkiller, and fentanyl, which now you hear a lot about in the news because it's mixed in with a lot of street drugs as well. So both of them are going to work on your opioid receptors. Both of them are going to, like from an efficacy standpoint, treat pain and help you out there. But from a potency standpoint, I need way less fentanyl to treat that pain. Like fentanyl be measured in like microgram dosing right. versus that morphine where I'm going to have to give you milligrams. So a thousand fold difference in the amount of drug I got to give to you to get that same pain effect. Um, and so and that happens in all sorts of classes of medication where um, something can be way more potent and then uh, but equally efficacious. So. Uh, it takes a lot less of it to get you to the place you want want to be. <laughs> pain, pain, not necessarily totally pain-free, but a lot more comfortable. Sure. Um, and then there's like therapeutic indexes. So with things that are more potent are like index between like, go back to cookies. <laughs> I love cookies. I really love cookies. <laughs> These are good analogies. <laughs> so if I like, I'm like, Five cookies. It can take. It can eat five cookies. Or I can eat ten cookies. I eat a whole sleeve of Girl Scout cookies, or I can eat two sleeves of Girl Scout cookies. Still gonna be fine. Sounds good. Or you have something that's like a narrow therapeutic drug, therapeutic index drug, and that's like I eat a cookie, and then if I take one bite of another cookie, I might die because that's like too much. So a lot of potent drugs have like a very narrow window. So I have to be a lot more careful in dosing those drugs than other things. And so that's something else that pharmacists can or have been involved with is like monitoring of those super like we have a really small window that we have to hit um, to make sure we're like getting the effect we want without pushing you to a place we don't want to push you to. <laughs> So it seems like the drug you would want is something with a tremendous amount of eff efficacy and very low potency, like uh, as a generic statement. Yeah, or um, it could be efficacious. It could be fairly potent, but have like a lot 
like you want something that doesn't affect other parts of the body you're like you want it to be able to get its job do- done get like slip in wherever it needs to get to do, to do right. its uh, area of action without causing many effects on the rest of the body are there examples of the opposite so something that's extraordinarily potent and very low efficacy and if so why would one take that I can't think of one off the top of my head. Okay, that's good. I guess that's good, right? <laughs> I was like, there probably is something out there that's like that, but I. It would probably be really... something for like something unbelievably specific. Yeah. And like, it's like there's there, you don't really have a choice. This is this is it type of deal. Yeah, I'm I'm going to have to. Just curious. Think about that one. Just curious. I like I like doing I'll polar opposites. On that. Yeah. I like doing polar opposites just to see where yeah. we go. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. It feels like it should exist, but I can't think of it. <laughs> so for the you mentioned therapeutic index. Mm-hmm. Is is that does that somehow affect the safety and 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 and, and effectiveness or so that window is like the window we want to hit to make sure we're getting the effect we want to get from the drug without causing too many like bad ef- detrimental effects. So um, when they do drug testing, like the initial, so when the FDA is, they find a drug molecule and they want to start testing it and they do animal testing. <laughs> Which, like, obviously, there's some FDA Modernization Act where they're trying to move away from that and start in humans. But there's something to be said for the fact that they'll do animal testing to find, like, like at what point like is it or something, right? Is an effective, yeah, an effective dose versus a lethal dose, and then they'll have like um, those kind of two dosing things, and then they'll look at that effective dose and that's the dose they're going to take to your first round of studies, which will be humans that don't necessarily have this disease state, but just to make sure that this medicine is still safe at that effective level. And then they'll expand it to people with that disease state, but without a lot of comorbidities, which will be slightly larger. And they might say, oh, well, we've seen it's effective. The cookie, going back to my cookies again. <laughs> like it could be five cookies seems to work or 10 cookies seems to work and doesn't seem to cause a lot of harm and like people are perfectly healthy. So let's I mean, if take we're it. stay with cookies doesn't yeah. cause diabetes or whatever. Okay. Yeah. All the, all of the people who participated in this trial got diabetes. I mean, with your cookies, clearly. Um, okay. Okay. There's another word. Another drug word. There is. Affinity. We hear this one tossed around quite a bit. How does that relate to the other two, sort of efficacy and, po- and potency? Um, so affinity is kind of a more, as a different kind of concept as far as um, those three play together. So affinity is usually drugs refers to drugs that have specific binding sites so that they need to pharmacodynamics so this is pharmacodynamics okay um where we're talking about what the drug's doing to the body and we have various types of drugs that do different things but there's some that are really particularly designed to bind to um 
an enzyme. And so some perfectly match. Like when we talked about when people talked about COVID, they were designed to find that spike protein and like bind and adhere and mimic that and facilitate copies. So then your body could um, you know, the immune response to your body could find that spike protein and locate it no matter where it was and then stimulate that immune response so you wouldn't get mm. COVID. Um, but there's other drugs that like maybe have a high affinity, like alcohol, one of the most commonly, probably most commonly used, one of the most commonly used drugs. Caffeine, I think, beats it out. Not a fan of caffeine, big fan of the first one. <laughs> <laughs> so alcohol has a big affinity for your, um, I mean, it has that relaxation effects because it, it has a big affinity for a neuroreceptor in your brain. Um they call them GABA receptors. And so... Um, Probably my favorite receptors. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it upregulates. So as you get more exposure to that, your body like tries to make up for that. It's like, I'm not going to get... This is where you develop tolerance. So, I was joking. I couldn't name another receptor, so... <laughs> I have another one. And then NDMA. Sounds less interesting than the GABA receptors. So that's kind of your like stimulant receptor okay maybe i was wrong <laughs> <laughs> you're like wait a second i don't know which one's my favorite now um and alcohol is an interesting drug because it's like actually probably of illicit drugs one of the most i mean not illicit but abused drugs sure it's probably one of the most deadly for people to have we talk about opioids all the time definitely not a safe drug to be dabbling mm -hmm. um in but of commonly used things, alcohol actually like abusing it and then just cold turkey stopping it can be one of the most deadly things people can do. And it all has to do with this receptor affinity and regulation that your body does. I mean, that's just in the 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 imbibing of the drug itself. But even beyond that, you've got silly behavior that's gone on, dangerous <laughs> behavior that's gone on, driving while drunk, committing all sorts of crimes while drunk, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anybody who would argue with what you're saying. So from a pharmacy standpoint, then on top of that, so you stop drinking um, and you have all of these receptors that are now out of balance that your body tried to balance out for it. So you have a lot. They tried to get rid of those kind of relaxation receptors, and now they've given you way more of those excitatory receptors. So you don't have that even balance. And so if, when people stop drinking, you hear about, like, delirium tremens and um, seeing pink elephants and hallucinating um, when you go cold turkey or having seizures. And it's because you have so many of these stimulatory um, receptors that are firing at, at, and they don't have enough GABA receptors to kind of balance them back out. And so there's usually like up to a week period and somebody who's got a significant alcohol problem where they really need to be excuse me, I've been eating, drinking bubbly water. <laughs> <laughs> but they really need to be seen by and watched by health uh, professionals because right. that's, that can be extremely deadly. Sounds like what you're saying is wean, don't <laughs> yeah. cold turkey. Yeah, yeah, okay. definitely wean. <laughs> I'm fairly sure a number of relatives know this quite well. <laughs> okay. Um, 
what's what are the some of the differences sort of like there's individual differences in like genetics at least i understand as i understand metabolism um maybe other things i'm not thinking of in sort of pharmacodynamics uh, uh how does that how does that affect people so the metabolism piece is really so when i think about pharmacodynamics i think about what the drug is doing to the body sure. and then the metabolism piece comes into the kinetics cuz it's like what my body's doing to the drug um, but there's all sorts of, usually there's a lot of enzymes in your body that are breaking things down. Um, there's a really complex system of enzymes that your liver makes. Uh, when your liver's an amazing filter for your whole body. <laughs> and I've been like totally amazed by it, um, how much it can get rid of and, uh, take care of but it has a very advanced like secondary system um which is called the cytochrome p450 which is a totally probably overly technical term but um and it's an enzyme and there's all sorts of like variants of flavors of this enzyme so you have the like sip 2d6 and the sip p450 and the sip 2c1 and so all of these people will have in varying levels um and then metabolism can also be affected because you could take a drug and it could induce one of these uh, enzymes to work better or or you can inhibit it make it work not be able to do its job and then for people taking a few different drugs, that can end up being a problem and something we need to think at from like an interaction standpoint. Um, and and then just from a personalized medicine standpoint, because everybody's body is going to have varying levels of these drugs, there's certain drugs that may not work for you if you don't have this particular, um, it's not so much in the liver, but some of the like immunotherapy and new oncology drugs. And mm. this is not a field that I like have super expertise in, but I also think is amazing and interesting, uh, is that they'll look for certain, uh, certain mutations that you have in your genes. And so if you have like a certain type of mutation, I think it's like Jack, they call it Jack 2 mutation for lung cancer patients, it makes you a candidate for this particular therapy because it acts on that particular mutation. Um, and that's the level of specificity we've been able to get to um, cool. with therapies, which is awesome. I mean, it's unfortunate when you have these really specific therapies and you don't have that mutation because then you're like, well, I guess that one's off the table. But it's really cool that that science is moving in that direction. Um, and that's something that they've actually said about mRNA vaccines is there's some technology that in being able to isolate that part of uh, RNA, they might be able to do that for cancer cells and like personalized treatment that targets certain areas like certain RNA streams of cancer cells and would allow more targeted therapy so you don't get like the major adverse effects that you can see with a lot of the chemotherapies that are just targeting every cell that rapidly divides in your body. Wow. I mean, I, this is one of my favorite topics, personalized medicine. I love this, that that the science is just moving, uh, it, it, even at all, even yeah. at all that it's moving. That's, that's amazing. Um, 
Do you have particular research projects that you're involved in right now? I don't know if you're able to discuss those, um, but like maybe we could talk generic terms. Uh, so pun, I... pun intended, since I'm talking to a pharmacist. <laughs> well played, well played. Horrible, horrible. <laughs> I liked it, but I'm a pharmacist, so I should. So from a like drug, um, kind of the large, I guess, drug discovery phase standpoint, I'm not as involved in that kind type of research. Uh, we will have... We will be study centers for some of those projects, and we actually have a pharmacist whose role is an investigational drug pharmacist, and he like oversees the pharmacy part of all of our studies, makes things sure things are blinded and randomized, um, and so he does that for several chemotherapy, uh, cardiovascular. We have some maternal health studies going on at some of our sites. Um, me and my role, because I'm more on the clinic-facing side, I do a lot of retrospective data um, and studies. And so I work with some of our residents after they graduate pharmacy school. They'll come and do a year or two of uh, postgraduate residency. And the reason that's usually recommended um, if you want to be in a more clinical setting is just it's like an extra two years of intense learning where the pressure to do a bunch of other stuff isn't on you. You make a lot less money, but like it's uh, and you work a lot, but like you have the resources of getting to spend you know, four weeks at a time with somebody who just does cardiology pharmacy and four right. weeks with somebody who just does oncology pharmacy. Um, but as part of that, they're required to do research. Uh, so I've worked with several of those residents. We published two articles this past year. Um, one, we were doing a new novel uh, drug therapy for stroke. So not totally novel. I should novel is probably the wrong word, but it was not the guideline preferred therapy. We were an early adopter mm -hmm. for um, a drug called Tenecteplase, which can be delivered as a one like one IV push bolus versus um, the previous drug where you had to do an IV push and then you had to run an infusion over an hour. So this was like slowing down. And making it difficult if you presented somewhere out in the hill country or really a rural hospital, um, a lot of the ambulances didn't want to bring somebody on an infusion because it's like a blood thinning infusion if they had a bad reaction, which it can cause anaphylaxis. Um, mm. Not, it's very rare, but it could happen. They didn't want to be dealing with that and have the patient on a blood thinner and having a stroke in there. Um, a lot of stuff going yeah, on at the yeah. same time. So this is like, we give it to you, it's a straight push, and then we can transport you, um, which is one of the reasons we move towards it, among a lot of others. And so we discussed dosing errors. Um, we looked into the errors and ways to prevent that, ways to move to a protocol with that, and provided a lot of um, kind of firsthand experience research based on what we saw from that and publish that for other hospital systems that might be looking to go in that way. Um, and then we did another study, um, another resident, about like various sedation strategies and people who are paralyzed, which is totally, totally, totally different topic. But I've always been interested in like 
and my training and backgrounds in emergency medicine, critical care. So like the ICU is where I feel most at home. It's, I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> you're talking about basically do, putting people under who are who are paralyzed. Um so like or disabled in some fashion. So one of the treatments they have and we did this a lot in COVID for people who are having trouble like keeping their oxygen saturation up mm-hmm. was um and I only know this at a very probably basic level from the point of a treatment perspective. But if they were failing to saturate, one of the ways that we can maintain O2 sats is you'll intubate and put somebody on a ventilator where we can control um, their respiratory rate so we can get you breathing off CO2. They can provide positive pressure so they'll keep your um, alveoli open so you have more space to get oxygen in. It seems like doing this in the long term is not a good thing, though. No, not not the best. You usually have to have a lot of um, recovery and therapy afterwards. So for patients who are not on are on that conventional um, ventilation, still having trouble because mm-hmm. their body's just naturally fighting those settings right. will paralyze them for temporary periods mm-hmm. of time. Um, to help their body just comply with those settings that are going to make sure we're maximizing their oxygenation. But obviously, if you're completely paralyzed, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to remember (laughs) that experience at all. Nope, that would suck. So we looked at the different types of um, sedatives that you can use to make sure that you're achieving deep sedation. And then after extubation, like how fat quickly can you get a tube out of somebody, depending on which sedative you used because of the way they're metabolized. Our hypothesis was like one would be preferred over the other. Um, because you'd be able to get out of the system quicker once the person's ready to come off the vent. Mm. Um, because, again, like a sedative's going to drive that uh, like respiratory depression and make it harder to breathe. And so we didn't want them to have lingering <laughs> effects from that. So we decided to look into that question. Um, I don't think we had enough patience to really find an answer, but it was an interesting uh, study. <laughs> I love that people like you are in this field, <laughs> and I'm really glad that I'm not. I'm just going to be no, that's, just going to be honest there. That's fine. <laughs> I don't know how you can deal with this stuff on a day to day basis. It's tough. Um, have you ever had some tough days? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's a silly question. I'm sure the answer is yes. What does that look like? I think so. Um, it's there's there's been a lot of tough days that are different. I think there's... Does one stick out? Um, I mean, I think like when COVID hit, the first patient we had to intubate and then he was in his 40s, like that was a rough day because nobody really knew what was going on and we were trying to like deal with this containment that nobody knew how, how contained it needed to be and then you're not used to like having a closed door and people are trying to scream through the door and like, it's just kind of all chaotic. Um, But when I was a resident in training, 
I worked at a trauma hospital, and I think, like, those days were some of the hardest days because you'd work in the emergency department, and we were part of the response team for um, any of the major traumas that came in, and we were also a pediatric trauma center. Oh, so man. those are the cases that are, like, the ones that I remember that stick out probably the most. Um, and you're in, in the moment in time you are able to compartmentalize these things to a point where it's like you don't really think about what's in front of you but rather like what do I need like solve the problem yeah and you go into this micromanagement zone of like also trying to anticipate what's the doctor going to want as the next thing like this person was in a massive car wreck and they're losing lots of blood till the blood gets here we need fluids to keep their pressures up and like trying to be one step ahead so you kind of can that take that off their plate in that situation so they can focus on the other things, which was a skill that was, I remember my first day as a pharmacy student being in that situation and my <laughs> preceptor, wonderful man, he was like, can you make this vasopressor, which is one of those, um, IV to like help increase their blood pressure because right. his blood pressure was just tanking because he was bleeding from somewhere, and he's like, "You take this vial and you put it in the the IV bag." It's mm -hmm. like cool. Um, this shouldn't be too hard, man. I was shaking. I was like red. I was flustered. I kept looking in the room at the guy, like tearing up a little bit. Um, you could tell like the resident who was with me was like, I could just do this so much faster than she can do it. And he's like, no, this is how you have to kind of learn to be able to function in these situations. Nobody and he's like, targets. not everybody's, this isn't for everybody. He's right. like, this is kind of like a trial by fire thing. Cause he had actually secretly already mixed it and given it to the doctor. It was more, but he hadn't told me that, that part, um, which was probably good. Cause it took me so long the first time to do it. But I was like, I also, when I got to see it being given and see the difference it was making, like in that moment, for that patient's blood pressure and like being like, okay, so he's getting enough blood to his major organs right now. So we're not losing heart tissue. We're not losing brain tissue. And I was part of the reason we were able to get there. Part like, of the life-saving process. I, like, I love this. And it's a little bit of an adrenaline rush <laughs> once you get used to it. Um, even though it can be, it's extreme. It can be extremely sad though. I'm sure. I'm sure that, um, yeah. Still don't understand how you guys do that. I don't. I don't I'm not sure I could handle that. Uh, I, I remember being at any number of the, the places that I've worked and something, you know, a server went offline and oh we're we're losing a ton of revenue, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like that's it's just so insignificant. Well, and that's where it's in funny comparison now. Um, even though you feel pressure, it's just like there's just it's it's not even close. It's a different kind of pressure. Uh, it's not even I, you wouldn't even call it pressure. You can't compare them. No, there's you, no way you can't. But the thing now is like in working in healthcare, that's kind of frustrating. And I think you see this coming out in the news more is you have your frontline workers who are seeing this, dealing with this, having to cope with all of these things. And then 
you have the bottom line dollar that the health the hospital system's making. Not that it makes a difference there, but it has made a difference in wages and hours and conditions. And like there is the jokes and I will say definitely participated in the jokes about like, oh, we're getting pizza for all of our hard work, you know, <laughs> good job. <laughs> like, like, okay, they like intubated four people on this floor today. You're going to give all these nurses pizza. Thanks. Um, I mean, it was, it was, it wasn't not appreciated, but it was just kind of like, come, why don't you come down here and like help us instead? Or they gave us a little packet of like, you're a star. And it was like a starburst, but it was literally a starburst. Sugar and pizza can cure a lot of things. I'm, I'm not, I'm not in medicine. Also, I'm just saying. There's... It's also a miracle we don't all have diabetes. <laughs> Zero question there. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier about sort sort of the the different copies of genes and and various things like that. Has there been some gene editing work going on in in pharmacology and whatnot? Um, you know, how, how is gene editing and and uh, the like affected your field? So for me personally, I don't I haven't seen that technology really. Okay. Um, in my day-to-day work because a lot of the stuff that's probably where they're looking at that is I think it's I mean I could be there could be something out there that I don't know of but I think a lot of it is probably still in exploratory kind of laboratory phases in terms of trying to figure out and I think this will go back to personalized medicine we'll be trying to figure out like how can I look at this genome sequence and like maybe insert something in there that causes this not to replicate in a certain way or and I think they're just trying to figure they're at the point where they're trying to figure that kind of stuff out. Like, what can we do with what we found it exists? So it'll be exciting to see what happens in that area. Um, there are some like. There's a drug and I forget. I want to say it's used in prostate cancer, but I'm not. 100% on that, so don't quote me on it. But they do take, like, somebody's blood, and they spin it, and they take certain components of it, and then they put the drug in with those components, and they infuse it back in mm. to your system, which is kind of interesting and probably getting closer to some of the possibilities that you could see with, like, gene editing um, and some of the stem cell research as well for therapies. But that'll probably be handled more by physicians in those fields where they'll give those therapies without as much pharmacy interaction, Mm. which is also an interesting thing. It's like the OR. The OR to me is this place I don't know what happens there. I give them a lot of drugs, and then I don't know where where they're giving them. (laughs) Okay, so we touched a little bit earlier on some of the opioid crisis. What does this look like from your perspective? I mean, I'm, is it the doctors prescribing this that's like an actual issue? Is it the pharmacists doling it out? Is it going out of the back of these factories? What what the hell's going on here? Uh, so there's a lot of things that fed into and fueled this. Uh, the first was... The physician prescribing, um, and this came about probably like the 
late 2000s, early 2010s, um, maybe even a little earlier in the 2000s, but they started calling pain the fifth vital sign. And so you had to treat you treat your patient's vital signs and pain is one of those. So you need to make sure your patient's satisfied from a pain perspective. Isn't that a little weird? It's totally weird. Like when you hear someone say that now, you're like, no, it's not a vital sign. Like, I mean, if you're experiencing pain, it's literally a side effect of something else. I mean, am I saying that wrong? It seems like that's that's what it is. Why would you treat the pain and not the thing that's causing the pain? Well, you treat both, right? But you're like assessing the patient's pain throughout their stay. But the problem is okay. then you're going to start to build tolerance to these pain agents or you build the expectation and in some of these syndromes where you might have chronic pain, right. you're never going to be pain-free. You're always going to have some semblance of probably pain, unfortunately. Um, and there's probably a lot of other things you could do for it that are not related to taking a medication at all that would help improve it faster. Okay. Uh, or not faster, slower, but may overall help it go away more. Um, and so... It just becomes this thing where they become more tolerant to it, and then the dosing just gets higher, and then the expectations given that I'm going to be pain-free all the time. Um, even the surveys that, like, hospitals were asking patients after they left asked, like, how well did you feel your pain was addressed during your stay? So they were, and that was going into, like, what we call an HCAP score, um, which is something that healthcare... Uh, like they'll report out for like, is this a good hospital? Do they have good HCAP scores? Because it, like looking at patient satisfaction. Patient feedback. Okay, yeah. got it. Um, on various areas. And I think all of a sudden people realize this is where we're heading with this. So um, that whole concept kind of got scaled back and now it's pretty much not a standard of practice. There's a lot of things with pain and assessment that are still, but we're not calling it the fifth vital sign <laughs> anymore. Um, and then the other thing that happened um, probably about the time I started getting into pharmacy, and I think back about this and it's wild to think about, were pill mill pain clinics. So there's a lot of money to be had when you... Um, prescribe narcotics and dispense narcotics. And so if you have a lot of people who, if you write, can see a lot of people in a day, you can charge for all these patient visits. So you had these pain clinics popping up um, and they would prescribe, they'd be like known to, hey, we'll just do an x-ray. Oh, you have this diagnosis now. I'm going to start prescribing you 120 Norco 5 325s, 60 Somas, 60 Xanax, and... They were allowed to do that? They were doing this, like, in Florida. There were places in Houston. Um, when I was working, we there were certain doctors we would refuse to... So pharmacy kind of became a part of this because there were pharmacies that were pill mills. And the pill mill term came from pharmacies who just were like, hey, this is a prescription. I'm not going to ask questions. Here's all of the, like, here's all these pain medications. 
um, because we weren't being closely regulated. We were being regulated for these drugs, but not to the same extent that I would say regulations have come down on pharmacies since then for your responsibility and your monitoring and the diligence of monitoring that happens and information sharing. Because also, like, if I, the pill mills knew oftentimes, but like at, when I worked as a technician at a Walmart pharmacy, which I did, <laughs> every time I tell someone I worked at Walmart, they're like, you were one of those door greeters that smiled and gave the carts. And I was like, no, I worked in the pharmacy, but it was right next to the door greeter and he was an awesome guy. <laughs> um, I believe that there was a door greeter who, who retired with a million dollars in his account. Oh, I'm, I'm I think sure. you can Google that. I, Walmart, I, well, for all the crap that it gets, Walmart's not a bad bad spot. No, this one had had its moments, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we would occasionally get these prescriptions for like these wild quantities of pain medicines, and occasionally we would f- have filled one. And once the word got out that this pharmacy had filled one. We would have a line of patients who would all have come from the same doctor in Houston with the same prescription. They always threw a multivitamin on there, too, you know, <laughs> just making sure. While you're stoned with the bejesus, you still need vitamin C. Yeah, in case you forget to and eat. And your iron. <laughs> in case you forget to eat today, let's just make sure you get your vitamins. Uh, I always found that, like, I was like... If I'm going to find some humor in this person being wildly addicted to opioids, I'll find it in that they still are taking their multivitamin, or at least they're picking it up. Um, And they'd pay all cash for these medicines. Sounds right. There was even, like, people would call and be like, do you have the yellow ones or the white Norcos? Because they had, like, a favorite manufacturer brand, even though generic brands should all be within, like, a 10% amount of drug that's in them that's the same apparently at this point in time in 2008 the yellow norcos were the thing (laughs) and if you so we'd always tell them we didn't have them even if we did have them (laughs) because we're like we don't want you showing up here (laughs) um but so this was kind of a phase that things went through and i think because of this then we started seeing this crackdown of prescribing Um, There was the development of these prescription monitoring programs. So anytime anybody got a controlled substance now, we, the pharmacy, send data to the state um, here in Texas. And this was like probably about 2014, 2015 that started happening. And then that data now is like a nation, almost nationwide. So almost every state shares that data amongst itself. And now there's like legal requirements before you're even dispensing a prescription for an opioid. I'm checking to see what's your refill history on this. Do you look suspicious? They have suspicious, like, um, I forget what they call it. It's like a NARC score or something. (laughs) Whoa. But <laughs> that's definitely not the name for it. But uh, who's, it, a, who's assigning that? <laughs> uh, the uh, state board of pharmacy. Oh my! Okay. Um, but it's a like probability of risk based on the number of different prescribers, different pharmacies, and different areas that a patient has gotten narcotics from in a certain period in a short period of time. Um. So that's been some things that have kind of helped 
maybe, and pro providers are now, as of last year, required to also view this data before they even write the prescription. Right. I think because of that, though, that fuels people, obviously, who have drug addictions now are looking for alternate ways to get to that. And so it's been interesting from the pharmacy perspective um, for people who work in community pharmacies because they're seeing... Uh, people come in for those new medication-assisted therapy treatments that we have. Um, and then we can also hand out naloxone, which is the reversal agent for if you have an opioid overdose. Um, Does that still work on fentanyl? Mm -hmm. It works on every oh, okay. um, opioid to reverse its effects. Fentanyl, the issue can be that it because it's so potent, as we talked about earlier, yes, we did. <laughs> all those cookies, <laughs> um, it won't last very long. And so usually the boxes that you get, you get two nasal sprays in them. Um, and sometimes these patients will need like four before they're able to reach emergency oh. services, like an emergency department. Um, but the biggest thing has just been getting that out into the community right. and providing the education about like when it's appropriate to give it. Um, like what's the difference between just a great high and an actual overdose is what sure. my friend Lucas would say. Right. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> what, is, what does this mean for our country or for that matter, the world or humanity, right? Like what, what does this mean in terms of like, like the, this, this crisis, like we've never seen before? I mean, I think it's a function of just like the, a function of different things that people have, you have seen addictions to in the past and an idea of a society where we're always looking for something that's going to satisfy that like dopaminergic fix. And so, um, yes, this is a dangerous way, obviously, of doing it, but there's always going to be a substance that comes along and people are like, this gives me this great feeling that blocks out a lot of the chaos in my world, whether it be true pain, whether it be emotional pain, whatever they want to be numbed from. It's all true pain, but physical versus yeah. emotional versus, I, I don't know, spiritual, whatever it would be. And I just think like right now in the world the way it is where you have a 24 7 culture i mean even i sometimes i'm like why am i checking my phone like first thing when i wake up in the morning like i have other things i could be doing i never do that <laughs> i'm a terrible at it although i've been getting better lately i try to like i have a little routine where i journal then i go to the gym and then i then I look at my phone. <laughs> reward. You did your things, then reward. I'm a big fan of the sort of the workout in the morning and a little walk. Yeah. Get the dog out there. No sunglasses so I can get the, the morning sun, et cetera. But, and absolutely do not touch the phone. And I, th But I think like so many people do because that's another addiction that we all have. And it causes a lot of distress that you see. It also promotes a lot of things that I think like people weren't aware of and has made like finding and getting like and getting a hold of certain substances probably easier than it had been in the past substantially in a lot of yeah. ways um and so like from a 
just what it says about culture. I think it just feeds into the, the kind of culture that we see today, which is like a very fast paced culture where people are looking to kind of ignore anything that isn't pleasant and immediately like giving you some kind of good fix, um, even if it's at your own detriment in the long run. I would argue that's a, I would argue we don't need to take a breath and that people should realize that, again, just one man's opinion, but I think hardship oftentimes is a good thing. It's a character builder, right? And I think a lot of times that we we take these things for granted. The, the reason I'm bringing this up in particular is I can't remember where I, I should have looked this up beforehand, but I can't remember where I saw this, but I want to say it was like a, 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 a Times article. Maybe it was a... a, a Washington Post. I can't remember. It was a few years back and this woman got into some sort of accident in Germany. She wasn't critically injured or anything like that, but she, you know, she was in a lot of pain. Yeah. They wouldn't let her have almost any pain drugs. I think they let her have it like the first day or two. Then once they did all the stuff, um, when she came out, she was like, what the hell's the matter with you? I'm in tremendous amounts of pain. And they said, you can still talk. You're not in tremendous amounts of pain. You're in a lot of pain, but you could still talk. And she was like, well, what does that have to do with it? And they, and they literally said to her, you can tell us if it gets worse. That way we know if the surgery was successful or not. If we numb everything, we all, we're also numbing your, your responses to us. And she wrote this whole article about it. And at, at the beginning of the article, it was almost like she was like, you know, what the hell's... And disbelief about yeah, it. Yeah, just like, what the hell's going on with these, with these crazy German doctors, et cetera. But by the end of the article, of course, as you, as you read through, she was like, this was absolutely the right way to do things. We dole out pain med medication way too easy in the United States. A lot of times, yes, it is like, they, they weren't withholding it and saying, you never need pain meds, because I did have it the first couple of days. But uh, you know, after, I can't remember whatever surgery she had, they were like, no, we need to know if the surgery, like, it's supposed to hurt. Yeah. You, you just had part of your body open and stitched up or whatever they did to her. Um, They're like, it's supposed to hurt. If you can't talk, we know how bad it is. You will get pain meds. You're able to talk. And when you wake up tomorrow, you're still going to be in pain, but you're going to be in less pain unless we didn't do something right. In which case, you can tell us, but yeah. you won't know that if... Anyway, that, that always sort of stuck with me. Does that, does that make sense? It does. And I think that's one other thing that we also fail to appreciate a lot is like non-pharmacological things that we can do to help treat pain. So myself, I had a major surgery. So I had a craniotomy um, like four years ago. You can imagine 50 stitches, staples, staples, not stitches. They can't, they can't stitch up a skull. <laughs> Yikes. That would be very interesting. But uh, 50 staples in the back of your skull uh, causes a little bit of discomfort. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> um, and one of the things for that that actually was the best, and it wasn't pain medicine. I mean, granted, I did take pain medicine. But um, was ice, like having cold therapy on it. And they actually now have a lot of um, study and data into cold therapy and the effects it can have on pain and just like numbing, but also the effects it does to the circulation in those areas after you've had that prolonged cold exposure. Um, and so it's just interesting because I think we overlook that a lot. And um, before I went in, one of I, I probably would have overlooked it too, to be honest, except before I had it, I 
a friend of a friend who had had the same procedure done. Um, that was one of her biggest tips was get an ice pack. Like make sure you have an ice pack on your head at all mm. times. She's like, it also is surprising that your like scalp isn't that innervated back here. So like it's not going to feel as uncomfortable as you think it would. So I don't know. I think that's just something that we overlook. And I feel like it gets overlooked sometimes when we're at work. It's like, have we thought about this? Have we thought about trying to like bring a more soothing environment? I mean, having things beeping in your face all the time isn't the most like you're like, I'm in pain. My head hurts. And now this monitor is going to beep every two seconds. And you're going to wake me up and ask me to touch my nose every hour. I've, I've always I mean, I, I, I know you're not a, an MD, but even still, you're you're in the field. I've, I've kind of always wondered that myself, which is. You know, isn't there value in getting a good night's sleep and turning those ridiculous halogen lights off around the whole hospital? And you know what I mean? There's, there's, there seems to be a lot of stuff there where I'm just like, I know that you're trying to do good, but at the same time, I question some of the things where I'm just like, doesn't it seem like maybe a good night's sleep and the monitor not beeping and, you know, various things of this nature, just, just like you were saying, like, have we overlooked some, some things with Western medicine? I think that they're, they try, I feel like there's a lot of folks who are trying to realize that more, move in that direction more. There's like quiet hours, a lot of facilities now. Um, one of the reasons they restrict visitors is to get that quiet time in place again. And then um, they do like turn off the beeping like I got my my heart rate monitor kept beeping every night when I so when you're in the ICU I understand I'm like beep away because it could be that I'm like having some critical thing that needs to be treated immediately <laughs> the biggest thing though that happened was I uh I was messing with my, I was probably had too much pain medicine and was messing with the button on my bed to try and adjust the angle I was at. And I somehow adjusted it and I was like a little V like this, like the the feet and the head were up. <laughs> and I was very out of it. And I was like, so I called the nurse's station. And I was just said, help. <laughs> And they're like, what do you need help with? I was like, I've been messing with the bed buttons and I can't figure it out. And I'm very, like, in a bad way. And my sister, like, hears me because she had spent the night. She got up and she's like, oh, God. And like went in the hallway because I was like, I tried calling and no one's come because there was someone really sick next to me. Sure. Um, and some other nurse's aide came in and she comes rushing in. She's like, oh, no, <laughs> this is not OK. And then but she couldn't figure it out either and made it a little bit worse. Um, I don't know what was so complicated about the bed buttons because they really don't look that complicated uh, at other times. But the third person came in. They figured it out. It was much more comfortable. That's good. So. That's good. I'm glad. And they probably backed off a little on the pain meds after that incident. I'm glad someone got there. Jeez. Um, well, when you're, um, we we when we sort of sort of talk about these big existential crises that we've got, the opioid crisis, et cetera. Um, what are some things? Because that, I mean, unfortunately, that's that's sort of like been in the news a lot recently, et cetera. So that so, so the industry's had some some negative press. What are some things that are sort of on the other end of the spectrum? What are some interesting things that are coming or interesting breakouts in in your field that the rest of us don't know about? 
breakout so we know in the field that no one knows about. I feel like the problem with pharma is when we have a breakout, we're really good at announcing it to That's the world. <laughs> and they have a really good marketing budget. So you'll probably hear about yeah. the next big thing during the Super Bowl on Sunday. I'm sure of that. Um, as well as all the side effects you'll expect to see with the next big thing. Um, so I think they've made some really great strides in terms of understanding. And I have mixed feelings on this. And it, it's from more of a personal standpoint than sure. necessarily the pharmacist in me standpoint. I think the pharmacist in me is thinks, hey, like these GLP-1 agonists and some of these new weight loss drugs that you've heard about, like Ozempic, um, that are working kind of in more novel ways to help stop that like hunger response that's naturally generated um, by the secretion of certain hormones from the stomach. I think that's like a really unique and great thing for people who are having trouble losing weight. But I also find that, like, at times, by looking for that next new thing, we also overlook the fact that there's a lot of things that, like, you could be doing where you don't need medication at all. Um, and I always get conflicted about this because there are certain people who, regardless of what you, they have going on, the medications that have been discovered are great and very necessary, and they probably need them, Um or I know they need them. <laughs> shouldn't say they probably. I know they need them. I take my medicine. I know I need to take it. No matter how much, how healthy my workout is, how good my diet is going to be, like I can do all those things. Um, but I'd still need to take this because I could still have a seizure. And there's not like a good way to tell my brain to like knock it off <laughs> um, without having the medicine in there to work on those particular receptors. Mm -hmm. But um, I think with some of these, like, lifestyle drugs, I think there's a lot of positives to be said, but I also think that it negates a lot of the other things that our bodies can do for themselves that are naturally shown to probably improve longevity and, like, overall health. Um, so it's also been interesting, and one of the areas that you see growing pretty rapidly is functional medicine. Um, and there's actually a group of pharmacists within functional medicine who kind of blend these two things when people have to take drugs and also like looking at herbal and more natural um, ways of treating certain conditions. They've done some pretty amazing stuff as far as I've seen. Like I, I think they're, they're doing um, psilocybin and whatnot for like, for like PTSD patients, which I don't know why we ever stopped that, um, but apparently it was a thing r around the 60s and 70s. And then we, we like cold stopped it because it was apparently, you know, bad or something. But then it turns out it's not bad. It turns out that, uh, again, from, from some of the studies I've seen that like people are having tremendous strides with, with psilocybin, um, I think MDMA, v various other things where they're, they're really addressing some of the, the mental traumas that they've, they've got in their lives. One of the things they've been working on it with that, with regards to that, is usually the use of ketamine. And so ketamine, yeah. um, when I was a pharmacy resident, we had started a low-dose ketamine protocol for like people with extreme depressive episodes um, where it had been shown to have some benefits in. Um, so that's been kind of an interesting area that's been popping up more, more and more lately. Um, 
I don't know of like what the next big thing in terms of mental health drugs is, mm -hmm. but I also think the treatment and some of the medication assistance therapies that they've um, developed for uh, patients who are addicted to opioids, as we were talking about earlier, <laughs> yep. uh, were have been developed in a way that they um, don't have like abuse potential and they have less uh, dangerous. Like if you take too much of it, it isn't as dangerous as we were previously doing when we were giving people methadone. Um, and while methadone is still widely used for treating opioid addiction, it's like you have to go in person and get your dose every day. And if you don't show up, they're like can kick you out of the program and they give you these map massive doses and and ketamine methadone. Right. <laughs> all my all my uh, controlled substances here getting getting them mixed up. <laughs> uh, real good pharmacy. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a very interesting pharmacy. Uh, just one bowl of methadone. And ketamine. <laughs> Yikes. Um, but methadone has this extremely long half life that so sticks around in your body a long time and requires all of those enzymes we were talking about. It can um, inhibit and induce them. So it has lots of interactions with other medications you can be taking. Um, it just isn't a very clean drug. So the newer medications, some of the sublingual films are able to use to treat. Um, opioid disorder that also have a little bit of naloxone in it to prevent that high, um, but mm. but hit those receptors to prevent the side effects. Um, I've heard about this. It's almost like taking morphine without the actual the high. The high. Yeah. That's interesting. Is there not a way to... I don't know. Put, put, push push this particular drug in a direct. I don't know. I don't know what I'm even saying here. But push this drug in a particular direction so where it's got all the positive so-called side effects and none of the like addictive properties, et cetera. I mean, I think they'd love to find something like that. But I think anytime you have something that's going to give somebody lots of positive effects, mm. then it becomes something that has addictive potential. Because mm. um, it's also interesting when you look at controlled substances. So anytime we talk about controlled substances, there there's different levels. So you have like one, twos, scheduled twos are things like opioids. Scheduled threes are things like Xanax. And, and schedule then, one, of course, is marijuana, which is... <laughs> and cocaine. <laughs> um, I think cocaine schedule two. I think they still use it in dentistry. They do still use it in, <laughs> they actually have eye drops. Oh, eye drops, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I don't think uh, the recreational form would be still considered schedule I'm one. Sure that's the <laughs> uh, but there's like some seizure medicines that are considered controlled substances. And when you ask the drug reps about, because I'll grill them <laughs> when they come in to tell you about the next new drug. Because you want to know, like, it's great to look at the study that tells you, hey, this drug does this and it worked really well. And, you know, like it was 10% better than this other drug. Well, how many people did you look at it with it? And what kind of comorbidities? And why did you design this study to actually do? And I think a lot of times people ask those questions and then you see those drugs that later after the fact you're like, oh, wait, hold on a second. Maybe this isn't doing what we thought it was. Um, 
or maybe it um, isn't have like then you get like those warnings that come out after the fact on certain drugs because we start to notice increases in some bad effect that we weren't necessarily wasn't highlighted in that landmark trial. Right. Do they do, are they obligated to add that side effect that you've you've sort of collected data on, or is that left up to them? Um, no, if there's been so. Uh, it's interesting when there's like major adverse effects. We actually are like at the hospital, we would report those directly to the FDA. So the FDA wow. has firsthand reports from um, all the healthcare institutions in the system, in the not system, in the country. And so if you have all of these healthcare systems reporting adverse effects like that they'll look for trends and then they can reach out to the drug company and be like hey we're noticing a lot of this how's your post-marketing surveillance going um and because a lot of times even after approval they're still following up on those original trials as i understand it the as i understand it, the the drug trials that they do that raw data is never released ever as I understand it, the drug companies have the raw data, then they literally blanket that raw data with themselves. Like they they package up that that data for some set some subset of data. Like the actual one hundred percent unadulterated trials are never actually released out there. It's a secondary version. I'm not saying they're they're doctored, but I'm just saying like I I don't think the actual raw studies are out there. You get this sort of packaged up version. Then it goes to the FDA, so on and so forth. But it's good to hear, at least from what I'm hearing from you, is, yeah, but the raw data does come back. It's just unfortunate that it doesn't come back before it goes into the field. The one thing that is usually and that you can inquire about, I mean, this requires me going and asking the study author for it, is one, um, they'll have the major study that's printed uh, like large cardiovascular studies usually actually print a study before that outlines their entire study protocol and trial design um, so that you can really dig in to see exactly how they were handling all X, Y, and Z scenarios and what they're planning to do with patients. Like if a patient had to drop out because of a side effect, am I still including them in the final analysis or am I, if they're getting dropped out, are they now out of those final numbers? And then a lot, some of the larger studies will also publish what they call a supplementary index or a supplementary appendix. And those can be like hundreds of pages long with lots of data and analysis that didn't make the major trial. Um, and sometimes those can be very interesting to go back and see. Like if you see things in these baseline characteristics of these groups, like they don't look exactly the same or there looks like there might have been a little bit more of this. I wonder if they digged into it somewhere further and I can go and kind of look at it. So um, and that was a role for pharmacists during COVID when we're getting all these new drugs and these new drug trials. And it was a beautiful time in terms of sharing scientific knowledge, though, because they weren't hiding very much stuff Good. because it was like, That's hey, I might learn something here and you might learn it. And we're trying to like 
accelerate things beyond a timeline than we've seen before. So like the more we sh- more sharing we have, the better it is for everyone. Um, which was like a really beautiful thing about humanity during a time when like sometimes I'm like, what are we doing to each other? <laughs> um, in terms of COVID, like why are we fighting over masks? Like not not fighting over them physically, but fighting over like whether or not you're going to wear one or whatever um, the debate's going to be. But to see the the scientific community and how they were sharing knowledge during that time. And then as like a pharmacist, we were oftentimes like tasked with, look at this trial, tell us what you think, because we're trying to figure out from a treatment standpoint for all of the other kinds of treatments we're doing that are not medication related, which was almost more important than the meds, generally speaking, when someone's in the hospital. Um, Y'all analyze that and tell us your thoughts. And we would come up with the criteria like, who were the patients in these trials that were really shown to benefit from it? And who shouldn't we be giving this medication to because it didn't show benefit and it's emergency use. So we don't know the harm of it. So probably like just avoid giving it to these certain people. It's encouraging to hear sort of that there was a lot of sharing going on though. It's exciting stuff. Um, Molly, where can people find you online? (laughs) Or So... Um, as far as online, I do have a Twitter. Okay. <laughs> it is my full name <laughs> at Molly Curran, which is spelled C U R R A N, very Irish. Um, I don't I will say I'm not a religious Twitter poster, but I do uh repost things that I find that are very interesting and occasionally post memes. <laughs> Nice. Um, and then I work for a large healthcare system here in Austin right now. Um, and then a nas- it's part of a larger national hospital mm-hmm. chain. So it's um, the day to day. Awesome. That's good stuff. Um, so if from your field, you could manifest a technology into a technology, you know, for some definition of technology. If you could manifest something to, into existence from your field, what would it be? I think a drug delivery system that, like, was like, <laughs> I'm going to say cookie. <laughs> like, so we could just could eat put... cookies as bugs. <laughs> so you could just have, like, all of your, like, so let's say you take, like, four or five medicines. Right. Have some kind of drug delivery system where I could put them all into one thing. They're all baked into the chocolate chips <laughs> and the cookie. <laughs> no, but they're, like, all kind of, it usually would be a liquid, like some type of liquid where I'd get all of those drugs and it's like, I only have to drink maybe two or three sips of something and it tastes good. Um, And it's something people have been working on trying to figure out. Um, I have a friend who does some work in um, pharmaceuticals and she was talking about it, but the closest they've ever gotten is like you would have to drink a three gallons in the morning to take your drugs in the morning and three gallons in the evening. She's like, it's just not like we haven't gotten to the point where it's feasible. But if you could get a delivery system where you could deliver multiple drugs and some kind of tasty, I guarantee compliance would be so much better. Like so much better. People will be taking what they're supposed to be. Why is it three gallon? What stops us from doing this? I mean, obviously, like we need the tech to to advance tremendously. But like, is there, is it just you need 
so many enzymes, certain things are going to have to cross the blood-brain barrier. You got to figure out a delivery to get it into the bloodstream. And I don't, I don't know. You, you tell me. Uh, I think it's just having the volume necessary to prevent the drugs from interacting with each other okay. enough, because um, things could bind together. Or I'm sure there's other, other more. Uh, scientific complications with it that I'm not as aware of because I'm not in the pharmaceutical science fields. But I do know that like making sure that they're not interacting before you actually ingest is a huge thing. Um, it's a huge thing when we crush drugs and give them down a tube. We have to make sure we're like separating them with water so they're not interacting. Um, and so that's why I think like the large volumes are what they found to do that. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Um, I dig it. But if I could put it in an Oreo, that would be like. <laughs> right. An, okay. An Oreo. So an Oreo drug. All right. Yeah. Um, I know what's stopping us from getting there. <laughs> and that is quite a lot. But I would. Visco mainly. <laughs> I, <laughs> they're probably. I don't know. That would make them probably the most profitable company in history True. if they were if they were like, True. yep, here's your Oreo. Do this. <laughs> um, that'd be pretty awesome. Um, well, this has been awesome. Molly, thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Um, we've been standing on the shoulders of giants, and this is David Mackay. Thank you. <laughs>